Bilingual in America. Tunei el loga fi America. Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America. Ser bilingue en America. I'm Suzanne Identity for U.S. Hispanics is multidimensional and multifaceted. For example, many Hispanics tie their identity to their ancestral countries of origin, such as Mexico, Cuba, Peru, or the Dominican Republic, just to name a few. They may also look to their indigenous roots. Among the many ways Hispanics see their identity is their racial background. Afro-Latinx are one of these Latinx identity groups. They are characterized by their diverse views of racial identity, reflecting the complex and varied nature of race and identity amongst Latinos. There's no doubt that the intersection between Black and Latinx identity runs deep, and yet the Afro-Latinx experience remains mostly unacknowledged in mainstream media. So let's look at it. What makes being Afro-Latinx beautiful, challenging, unique? How do microaggressions impact being Afro-Latinx? How is bilingualism embraced? Today, we'll begin to explore this conversation. Let's listen in as segment producer Yarina Sencion speaks with Maximo and Hilda Rodriguez, Puerto Rican siblings that grew up in Brooklyn. Here's their American Afro-Boricua experience. Max and Hilda, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, my first question is, do you feel that microaggressions have impacted your self-identity? Absolutely. I mean, ever since I can remember, I always felt like I was in the middle. Meaning, Blacks used to say, you're not Black. The Hispanic used to say, you're not light enough to be Puerto Rican. And, you know, it's funny because even up to last year, I always get those type of, of remarks. So it has definitely made made an impact in, in in my life. Absolutely. Racism is a universal illness, you know, so to ask if microaggressions have informed my self-identity, the answer has to be yes. The question for me is how has it shown up, as Hilda said, in in my interactions with Black folk here and Latinos across the world. And, you know, it varies. Sometimes I've heard the same thing, you're not Black. And uh, what can I say to that? But well, that's true. You know, I am African-centered. I'm also Latino culture. That's a real distinction. And sometimes Latinos will be incredulous about my being Latino. And sometimes they'll look at me and just start speaking Spanish because in their personal worldview, they know that Latinos come in many hues. Oh. So, yeah, oh, my wow. Point. Yep. Uh -huh. Go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, no, no. It, it's, it's funny because I realize, and would you believe, I guess it's because the way the world is changing now, I never even thought about what, what you were saying um, until now. And I realized that all those people who act so shocked 
that, that I'm Hispanic, it is because of, of the race issue. Um, people have come up to me automatically and have asked me for directions or have started speaking in Spanish automatically, automatically. So they know exactly who I am. That's interesting. So you would say that depending on the individuals, either people made a prejudgment about you and decided that you were Black, or they made a prejudgment about you and decided that you were Latinx. And Absolutely. all those things have an impact. Okay, well, you know, so in the same vein, what would you want our listeners to know about what's beautiful in being Afro-Latinx? My answer to that is the fact that uh, Afro-Latina is, is the Latin soul combined with, with tenacity and, and strength that, that, that makes us so beautiful. So that's what I, I love it. I, I'm so proud of being Afro-Latina and, and having that, that salsa spirit, mm. you know, and, and embracing my blackness because, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, it's, that's, that's where that Latin music came from. It came from, from Africa. Being an Afro-Latina and experiencing all of that, it has just given me the tenacity and the strength to love being that, that Afro-Latina. That's beautiful. What would you say, Max, is yeah, that was what you find to be beautiful in being Afro-Latinx? Yeah, that, that's pretty good. Um, I, I think she stole my answer. Helma! <laughs> True siblings at heart here. You know what? I think we, we just think alike. And, and, that's our, and that's our experience. I mean, it is. I, I love it. I mean, do you know, I... You just, you know, I could go back and tell you of, you know, dancing, con el gran combo, you know, Eddie Panetti. I mean, you know, it's, I, I love being Afro-Latina and knowing that, that those drums and those congas, everything come from, from, from Africa, from, come on, we should all be proud. We're blessed. What's beautiful about being Afro-Latino is that the access that you have to all cultures is very distinct from, uh, th there, are fewer, there are fewer traps to step on. There are traps, but there are fewer of them, simply because each perception of race and culture always plays against each other. And, and having access to American culture, Latino culture, African-American culture, gives you an ease of movement that other people may not have. Hmm. I can see that totally. Well, I really want to thank you both for sharing your perspectives. I think that there's something really powerful and beautiful in, in recognizing how different cultures make you, you. And um, I can see how there are challenges and there's uniqueness and there's definitely beauty. So thank you so much for spending this time with me. Hilda and Max Rodriguez. Hilda and Max Rodriguez share how microaggressions have colored their experience, but that overall, they acknowledge a richness in having two cultures full of diversity, music, and more. Mario Palma is a Cuban-Puerto Rican Bronx native. He identifies as a simultaneous bilingual who sees every day as another opportunity to discover more treasures about his Afro-Latino ancestral lineage. He currently works as the Vice President of Multilingual Teaching and Learning for the American Reading Company, supporting bilingual education across the country. 
He operates from the belief that multilingual learners are this country's most untapped natural resource. Here is a portion of my interview with Mario. So Mario, I want to thank you for agreeing to speak with me and our listeners and to get us started on this episode that we're having, which really focuses on specifically Afro-Latinx realities. In terms of literature, what do you envision in a future that would disappear the necessity of this question? Are the percentage of self-reflective images in children's books where we need them to be? That's a question that is going to take me a long time to grapple with and thinking about more so lately now than ever. And it's been a uh, conversation that I've had in little increments over time with myself and with the people around me and more recently with the people with whom I work. I guess it's important for me to start the answer to that question by introducing a little bit about who I am and who I've learned more about myself to be. So I was, uh, I was born into a Cuban, Puerto Rican, Afro-Latino, simultaneous bilingualism house. It's a little multi-layered, so let me kind of explain. So my father was born in Cuba. He came here roughly around 14, 15 years of age. My mother was born in Puerto Rico. And so they met in high school in the South Bronx. And so my mother, you know, brought of the brought all of her, you know, cultural and rich cultural knowledge from that island. And uh, my father brought his background from Cuba. But those worlds, uh, even though there's a lot of history kind of rooted in uh, oppression in terms of the relationship the United States had with each of those islands, the turnout obviously has been very different. When they met each other and uh, raised my brother and I when I was super young, they understood the importance of speaking to us in two languages. And so over time, uh, I was able to learn different uh, lessons from my mother and my father, but definitely specifically from my mother that were rooted in this pride of like Afro-Latinaje. And I remember uh, specifically these uh, very vivid memories of uh, La Madama. La Madama was a doll, uh, this uh, doll made from uh, Black Tela, who was placed on an altar and we would give La Madama offerings, ofrendas. This was part of a larger uh, Santeria, Espiritista religion practices that my mother followed and engaged in and believed in. And so when we would give ofrendas to La Madama, it would be for her to nurture and protect us and keep all negative spirits, negative energy away. So I grew up with this love and appreciation of my Afro-Latino roots. My father played drums, played congas, uh, played the tambores often. I felt really connected to that in that way. And then, you know, thinking about the images of La Madama and this goddess that she represented, you know, this love of a, of a black goddess protecting me, you know, was this kind of one side of like my appreciation for for that part of my, uh, my culture. But in the same vein, what I have recently thought more of is uh, some of the anti-blackness that I was also raised with. Or comments that my mother made, you know, in the same breath as she would also say no te cases con la negra. And so I was raised with, I guess, vacillating between these two worlds of like appreciation of Afro-Latinaje and then anti-blackness. And when I speak to my friends about it, I mean, everyone kind of heard those comments that your tia made, ah, salió con los ojos buenos, salió con el pelo bueno. And, you know, I would never really uh, give it too much attention. But now we're like in the throes of Black Lives Matter. And we are have at least I'm hearing more conversations about Latinos who are acknowledging the anti-blackness that they were raised with. And on the flip side, uh, inviting and leading into the pride that they either were lacking as a child or failed to raise, be raised with as a child, leading into that 
Afro-Latino, Afro-Latinx pride more so than ever. And so I go back and I'm like, well, where, where did I all get lost? If, if I was vacillating between these two worlds at home, you know, where else could I have been nurtured in that way? And so I, I kind of blame it on the system that I was educated in. You know, we were educated within a system that centered whiteness, had a very Eurocentric curricula, centered monolingualism. And so it started to make sense. You know, obviously I'm going to start to you know, pride myself on following these images of what I thought was normal. And so it was normal to, you know, to look white, to speak white, to act white, to be monolingual. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't anything that I would challenge because I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't learning about my identity in school the way I did at home. So I kind of, I put that as this kind of institutional, anti-black, anti-brown, institutional uh, structure that uh, we, you know, many Latinos, all of us are, are taught in. And it's now as an adult that I'm starting to think about, well, what can I do uh, through the various roles that I have in my life and the people with whom I work and the influence that I could potentially have by changing the narrative and pushing back against this, what I'm realizing is a really strong anti-Blackness, anti-Black racism that we are all, that we've all been socialized or racialized into. And so to answer your question, this idea of what do I envision for a change, it, it, it centers on someone showing up to do the work and acknowledging the fact that we are all members of a racialized society. We live in a country that wasn't designed for us, was built by us, but wasn't designed for us. And, and then identifying ways that you can impact the, the change, you know, changing the narrative and centering blackness and brownness. And so my way of doing that was finding out a story that I could tell that highlights some of the struggle, the linguicism or the racism that someone who was black and Latino faced. And so we were trying to think of like, who's a person that we could write about that kids are going to gravitate to? And this was, we were, you know, we were writing it for second grade. You know, kids, a lot of kids are into sports and they're definitely going to see the, the name Roberto Clemente. And there's a, a reaction. Like, I want to, I want to grab that book. I want to practice my skills. I want to grow as a reader. Let me develop my reading identity. So we were like, let's do it. Roberto Clemente, besides being just like an amazing ball player, he was a humanitarian and had this whole other humanitarian life that I didn't know about. And so he was black and Latino and was raised by a really strong sense of family and a pride in himself in terms of his skin color and the way he spoke and his name and all of the things that were not taught either at home or at school, he was taught. And so I compared me being raised and being taught in the school system and the ways that he was nurtured into loving himself and felt that that was a story that needed to be told research that I did. There were all kinds of children's books that were written about him, but none of them really took advantage of the fact that he was introduced to the American baseball scene in the middle of Jim Crow. Second graders are absolutely, they are able to think critically. Sure. You know, and so uh, it wasn't just about writing the book. It was about writing the book through a social, political, uh, socially just way. And so you'll see the terms Jim Crow, uh, you know, introduced into the book and examples of how people made new reporters made fun of the way he spoke they tried to change his name you know these are things that latinos go through all the time we're not going to call you roberto we're going to call you joe or bobby or you know our we're going to try to whitewash you essentially you know this kind of white gaze that tony morrison talks about all the time so we talked about that we had a whole chapter on not just his achievements but the struggle la lucha but I hope it's just one extra example of changing the narrative. A question that I would leave the people listening to this podcast is what color is your pedagogy if you're a teacher? Whose lens are you teaching through? And if you're a parent, 
what color or what type of instruction, what color pedagogically do you want your child to be able to experience? If you have a black or brown child, they should see themselves in the curriculum. The curriculum should be designed around, you know, centering black and brownness. I think it's the one way that we can help kids self-actualize, which is what I think I was missing. I mean, I still learned how to read and, you know, I had my little relationship with books, but I was reading The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, you know, white characters. And I wonder what would have happened had I developed a love of reading with a sense of identity more intact by seeing characters that looked like me and sounded like me. Well, we're excited to see what comes next. So I really want to thank you for inviting me. And um, I'm just so thankful for everyone who's uh, been sacrificing to make sure that our transition back to school is a successful one um, and keeping our children safe. Thank you so much for this uh, platform. Mario shares his memories of vacillating between two understandings of loving his Afro roots and questioning them. Roberto Clemente, Opening Doors for Latin Americans, tells the story of a person who exemplified loving his Afro-Latinx roots. In writing this, Mario is honoring and acknowledging the power of Afro-Latinx. We congratulate Mario as his book, Roberto Clemente, Opening Doors for Latin Americans, a story in the transcreation process becomes available later this fall. We embrace the journeys of knowing our roots as a way of speaking our beauty. Being Afro-Latinx is being a bridge builder, standing squarely at the crossroads of Africanism in the United States. Afro-Latinx exists with the knowledge that Blackness is global in its scope. It is defined by more than little boxes checked off about racial and or linguistic identity, and only by examining one's roots, tracing them backwards by starting with the present, can one take on the long and sometimes unsettling unknown. But then there may be a newfound awareness, a more complete sense of self, and perhaps a truer acknowledgement of all of those pieces of oneself. As we continue to educate during these times of protest and social justice, let us remember that we are ever so present to creating an America that embraces all of us. Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback, and we appreciate your support. Follow us, like us, share us.